There we go. Well, we've come to Genesis chapter 6 in our journey through these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And on last week, we looked at, looked at uh, Genesis chapter 5 and this picture of the sons of promise. This picture in Genesis chapter 5 of this link between Adam and Noah um, through the line of Seth. Of Seth. So these first 10 generations after Adam. Uh, and if you'll remember on last week, we looked at the fact that though there were some intriguing aspects of that list of 10 individuals, such as Enoch who walked with God and then was not, uh, or uh, such as Methuselah who was the oldest man on record in the Bible, that the message of Genesis chapter five was not how old people lived, and the message of Genesis chapter 5 was not, not even about uh, the life of, of Enoch and uh, what his godliness consisted of. But the message of Genesis chapter 5 was God fulfilling his promise and preserving this line through the seed, specifically that of Seth. If you remember, uh, Cain and Abel, those first two boys we have one who demonstrated that he was not that seed that was promised by his murder of the other godly son. And so it's very important there that immediately following that, we see the line of Adam and the descendants of Adam uh, registered for us through not Cain, but through Seth. And I said that would be important as we looked at Genesis chapter 6. And so here as we get to Genesis chapter 6, Follow along with me as we read here in Genesis chapter 6, because Genesis chapter 6 is, a, is another one of those passages of Scripture um, that, that has a lot of temptations for us. There are a lot of, of rabbit trails to run down in Genesis chapter 6, and if we're not care, careful, we'll end up running down those rabbit trail, trails in Genesis chapter 6 and miss the point of Genesis chapter 6, which would have been even easier to do had we missed the point in Genesis chapter 5, but hopefully we're holding it together here. Genesis chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And, and immediately there in that first paragraph, or those first two paragraphs, well, yeah, that first paragraph, we read that, and we're struck by several things in the passage of Scripture. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? Who are these mighty men of great renown? And we'll get to some of those questions, but keep reading, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds in the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There Noah appears again. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. By the way, that roof part, that was really important. Adam would have had no idea why that roof part was important, but he's going to find out. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, and of the creeping things of the ground according to their kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Amen. And so here in Genesis chapter 6, again, we run into several things that are intriguing. Not the least of which are those that I mentioned earlier, this issue of the sons of God and the Nephilim and these mighty men, but also this issue of God being sorry or in some translations repenting because he has made man. What is is that about, the sovereign Lord of the universe uh, being said to be sorry for something that he has done? Uh, There are several other issues arising here, like the size of the ark. Uh, how, how big is this thing, this ark? You know, I found this uh, uh, picture here, and it's a, kind of a, this model of the ark and sort of dimensions of the ark. But it, 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 it would amaze us, I believe, if we were able to stand next to the ark itself. I was at uh, Liberty University. I was preaching at Liberty University, I don't know, I guess it was a year or two ago. And I had an opportunity to take a tour there at, at Liberty and there was a very interesting fact that was shared with us on the tour as we stood outside the main administration building there at Liberty University. And our tour guide said to us, interesting piece of trivia, trivia about Liberty University is that Dr. Falwell had this main administration building built to the specifications of the ark. So I backed up. 
I looked at that thing, and I said, you get a whole lot of animals in there. We have no concept of how large this thing was. None whatsoever. But to stand there next to something that was built according to these sorts of specifications and designed specifically to give people this sort of visual image of how large the ark would have been was actually quite impressive. And so we're not talking about a little boat here. We're not talking about a ship. We're not even talking about, you know, a a large ship, if you're familiar with very large ships. This is something that was massive, unbelievably large. And so there are, there are those questions that loom in the text. But all of these rabbit trails we could run down, and we could spend a lot of time talking about each of them. But the question would remain the same as it was last week. Is that what Genesis chapter 6 is about? Is that what it's here for? And some of these questions have to be answered in order for us to determine what Genesis chapter 6 is about. One of those questions that we need to deal with is this issue of who are the sons of God? When you read that here in the text, in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. What's being referred to here? Well, there are three possibilities. This has been interpreted three main ways. Again, there are variations of these, but three main interpretations throughout the years of this concept of who these individuals are. One is that this is a reference to the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. So the reference here, the sons of God, refers to the godly line of Seth. Remember, we've talked about this just in the chapter preceding in chapter 5. The second possibility is that these were powerful kings or princes of the age, Cainite kings. Now, hear me carefully. I didn't say Canaanite kings. There is no Canaan yet, okay? I said Canaanite kings. So kings who descended from Cain, okay? So basically there are these kings, these rulers, these mighty men who were the descendants of Cain. And these rulers, these mighty men who were descendants of Cain went into the, the, the daughters of, of, uh, of men. Thirdly, this refers to fallen angels. This term, the sons of God, refers specifically to fallen angels. It's not at all a reference to the men. It is a reference to angels. And so let's look at these three in turn. First of all, the idea that these are fallen angels. Uh, let me tell you, you, you know, some, some individuals who sort of proposed this idea. This goes back to Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, these are the types of individuals who made the argument that these were fallen angels. And they made it based on two main principles. Principle number one was that that term, sons of God, meant angels everywhere else that it was found. And everywhere else, by the way, is in Job, okay? Three times in Job, he talks about the sons of God. And it's a reference to angels, It's a reference to angels when they came before God. The sons of of God came before God, and there are these accusations that are being made. 
He refers to the sons of God. So this argument goes something like this. Well, because in Scripture when we see sons of God, specifically when we see it in Job, it refers to angels. Therefore, a plain reading of the text would have to lead us to conclude that this is a reference to angels. Also, they make the argument based on some New Testament allusions. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and also in Jude verse 6 and verse 7, there are allusions to angels in those passages. And they argue that those allusions to angels in 2 Peter and in Jude bolster the argument that what's being spoken of in Genesis chapter 6 is actually fallen angels. Listen to this from Charles Ryrie, who also holds this position. The sons of God are possibly one, the godly line of Seth, two, ungodly kings or kinglets of the day. I love that term, kinglets. <laughs> or more likely, three, a group of fallen angels who, because of their unique sin, were confined. The phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament almost exclusively of angels. And he refers there to Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. So Charles Ryrie joins with individuals like Tertullian and Cyprian in making this argument that this is a reference to fallen angels. Uh, listen to this from Henry Morris. When Noah was born and Lamech was led to prophesy that comfort concerning the curse would come through him in 529, Satan and his angels must have feared that their opportunity for victory in this cosmic conflict were in imminent danger. Desiring reinforcements for a coming battle against the host of heaven, and also desiring, if possible, to completely corrupt mankind before the promised seed could accomplish Satan's defeat, they seem to have decided to utilize the marvelous power of procreation which God had given the human family and to corrupt it to their own ends. And so now we have Henry Morris adding an entire narrative here, okay? Not, not just an interpretation. Morris gives us a whole extra biblical narrative. He gets into the motives of Satan, he gets into this cosmic battle. He gets into them getting ready for this cosmic battle. So, so he's not just making an interpretive assertion here. He's making a broad theological assertion as well as he inserts eisegetically this picture of what was going on in the mind of Satan to bring this up. What were these angels? There's three problems basically with this argument that they were angels. Number one, linguistic problem. Secondly, there's a contextual problem. And thirdly, there's a theological problem with this argument that there were angels, okay? And again, just bear with me as we, as we get through this to get to the meaning here of the text because this has to be cleared up. First of all, the linguistic problem. Sons of God occurs five times in the Old Testament. Just, just five, five times in the Old Testament. Uh, three instances in Job. And Job, remember, is wisdom literature. And then we have two instances in Genesis 6, which is the law, okay, which may or may not refer to angels. This is far from conclusive. Five times it's used. Just, just five times. Bera Elohim, five times that phrase is used. Three times Job uses it, and remember, Job is wisdom literature, 
You don't interpret wisdom literature the same way you interpret the law. Wisdom literature is poetic, for instance. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are wisdom literature. They're symbolic literature. So oftentimes you'll find a word used a certain way in the Psalms or used a certain way in Song of Solomon that when you go to another part of literature is not used the same way or in the same sense. So first of all, that would be inconclusive. Secondly, it's used here in Genesis two times, and in Genesis there are three major positions as to what it means. So if in Genesis it's not just straightforward conclusive, you can't say because we know what Job was talking about because of Job's context, and his context being clear, we can therefore come to the law and know that Moses was trying to communicate the same thing that Job was trying to communicate. That, that, that's possible, but, but that's far from conclusive. So there's a linguistic problem there. Secondly, there's a contextual problem. There's no mention of judgment against the angels for their actions. As we read in the text, when God gets upset, for example, uh, Look at what happens in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. So these angels commit a great sin and God says, I'm mad at man. There's a contextual problem there. The angels come in and seduce these women and God goes, I'm going to get rid of man. Not punishing angels. Next, there's nothing to stop the process from reoccurring in the future. If this is the case, and if angels intermarried with men and procreated with women, and God somehow strikes out in judgment against this and doesn't judge the angels for it and doesn't change anything in the world for it, then what's to stop it from ever happening again? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's never dealt with. Thus, God wouldn't have addressed the real problem. Here's the other issue. There's no mention of angels anywhere in Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 6. There's been no mention of angels. And now all of a sudden, six chapters of the Bible, there's no mention of angels, and now there's a cryptic reference, and contextually we want to say with authority, this is a reference to angels. So there's a contextual problem with making the argument that these are angels. Finally, there's a theological problem. First, angels do not marry. Jesus says this specifically. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, angels do not marry. The text says, look at it again, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Jesus says angels don't marry, but Genesis 6 says the sons of God took wives. So there's a theological problem here. Somehow, if these were angels, Jesus doesn't know how to interpret Scripture. 
Next, everything in creation reproduces how? After its own kind. We've seen that over and over and over in the first six chapters of Genesis. Everything in creation reproduces after its own kind. Folks, that's our argument against Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution, that, that's the side that says, no, you can have one species that eventually over time and through chance can produce an entirely different species. You don't get that from the Genesis record. Well, now, not only are we talking about different species reproducing not after their own kind, but we're talking about different types of beings, heavenly beings and earthly beings reproducing with one another. Got a huge theological problem there. Thirdly, angels cannot reproduce with humans. Angels cannot reproduce with humans because angels are non-corporeal beings. Here's the other thing. Angels don't reproduce at all. What about powerful kings? By the way, this argument was proposed by a theologian by the name of Meredith Klein. By the way, Meredith Klein, that's a man. Um, you know, it's interesting some of the names that used to be men's name back in the day that now you'd never think of. But Meredith Klein, and, and was not proposed until the 1960s, by the way. But Meredith Klein was the main proponent of this argument. First, it, it fits the context of 6, 1 through 4. Fits the context of 6, 1 through 4. For example, when you get down here in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, so it, it would go a long way toward explaining the context of that first paragraph, verses 1 through 4. These mighty men of old. You know, these Nephilim. And by the way, Nephilim, a lot of translations, for example, older translations, uh, if you have the King James, for example, they will say giants, giants. Well, that word Nephilim doesn't necessarily mean giants. So the translators there have actually taken quite a liberty in saying that that word means giants. Because Nephilim doesn't necessarily mean giants. It could mean giants, but it doesn't necessarily mean giants. That's why your more modern translations don't even translate the word, they transliterate the word. And there's a difference between translation and transliteration. The most common transliteration that we would know about would be the word deacon. Well, deacon, what does deacon mean? It doesn't really mean anything. But the Greek word is diakonos. So rather than translating the word and taking it from its original language into the receptor language, so that it means whatever it means in the receptor language, we just take the word itself and transliterate it. We work the letters around so it makes sense in the English language. So diakonos becomes deacon. No translation happened there, just a transliteration, okay? The same thing here. They just take this Hebrew word and they basically put it into English writing so that we can read the word. The word is nephilim. We, we don't know what nephilim are. We can speculate about what Nephilim are. Uh, for example, we read about them in Numbers 13. And in Numbers 13, there's this reference to the Nephilim, and they're the spies who come back and say, we're like grasshoppers in our own sight before them. I'm, I'm not even going to argue that they, that they weren't giants, because here's the deal. I, I've been thinking about this. 
Preaching Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6 has been making me think about a lot of stuff. We talked last week about how amazing it would have been for individuals to live that long and the types of advancements that could have taken place. But think about the human body in pristine conditions, perfectly formed by the hand of God. I think Adam might scare us when we see him. He might be seven foot six, 290 pounds, 900 years of working with his hands, just big, scary, just big, all right? Could be. You live all that time and working with your hands, you're growing in absolutely pristine conditions. I don't doubt for a moment, because I read about Goliath. So certainly, if there were individuals who grew to that size during the time of Goliath, after the flood, certainly there could have been individuals who were massive and unbelievably powerful with these long lifespans before the flood. So it could very well have referred to giants. Could have. Doesn't say. Where Scripture speaks, we speak with authority. Where Scripture's silent, we close our mouths. Amen? Doesn't say. What are the Nephilim? I don't know. Well, what are you thinking? It really doesn't matter because I don't know. Not a whole lot to go on. But there is this reference to mighty men, okay? And, And so here this idea that this was a race of individuals or a group of individuals who were perhaps very large, but at least very powerful and wielded their power and authority over other individuals, it fits nicely with the paragraph. Secondly, it it explains explains the emphasis on the Nephilim, and it also avoids the theological problem of angelic marriage, but it still leaves the door open for angels having possessed these mighty men. So that's why for a lot of people, linguistically, you, you know, you'd like to be able to say, sons of God, well, that refers to angels, but then you have a lot of theological problems with angels intermarrying and all this other stuff. But if it's this, if it's these mighty men, as Meredith Klein proposes, then you can have the angels who are actually possessing these mighty men, and it's a twofer. You get both. Some problems. Number one, Klein's argument is based on extra-biblical writings. Ugaritic texts and things of that nature. And, and so you look at the Gilgamesh epic and find out about things from, you know, the Gilgamesh epic, and, and then you come back to the scriptures. Well, y- again, you can see where those problems that could lead to. Next, it's not mentioned directly in the text. And thirdly, there are no, there's, there's no mention at all and no evidence of monarchs at this time. In extra-biblical literature... You find talk about monarchs. But in Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 6, there's absolutely no mention that the line of Cain had kings. None whatsoever. None. Not to mention the fact that if these were kings, there's a lot more clear way for Moses to say that than this cryptic reference, the sons of God. Listen to this. The incidence is one of hubris. The proud overstepping of bounds. Here it appears to the sons of God, a lusty, powerful lot striving for fame and fertility. They were probably powerful rulers who were controlled or indwelt by fallen angels. So that's Alan Ross's line of thinking. 
So not the first, not the second. How about the third? He hadn't figured out. This is the tack that I'm taking on Genesis chapter 6. I believe that that phrase, the sons of God, is a reference to the godly line of Seth. Several reasons. Several reasons I argue that. Number one, we're talking about the promised seed that we see in Genesis 3.15. Remember the curse on the serpent. The first proclamation of the gospel. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's in chapter 3. Well, then what do we see after that in chapter 4? The corruption of Cain. So which seed then is Cain? He's the seed of the serpent. So is the seed of the serpent a physical seed? No. We're talking spiritually. Spiritually. But here's the other interesting thing. When it says the seed of the woman, is it talking physical seed or spiritual seed? The answer, yes. Physical seed, yes. But spiritual seed, yes. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, Cain was the physical seed of the woman, but was he spiritually the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15? No. No. So somehow there was going to be this spiritual seed and this physical seed, and then after that, we see in Genesis chapter 5, what? The preservation of the spiritual seed through the line of Seth, not the line of Cain. You follow? So Genesis chapter 3, promise of this seed. Genesis chapter 4, we see the enmity between the two seeds that was promised. In Genesis chapter 5, we see the preservation of the godly seed through the line of Seth as opposed to the line of Cain. And in the very next chapter, there's this reference to the godly seed intermarrying with the ungodly seed. I believe the sons of God here is a reference to the godly line of Seth and the daughters of women as a reference to the ungodly line of Cain. And the godly line is preserved through Noah. He's the link, by the way. Noah's the link between Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6. Where does Genesis chapter 5 end? We're talking about the godly seed and the preservation of the godly seed. And it ends with Noah. Now in chapter 6, we're introduced to this unbelievable problem. And the question comes to us, what are we going to do? And after God introduces the problem, just briefly, he reminds us. You remember that last guy I talked about in chapter 5? That Noah character? You remember I told you last week, eight times we see the same phrase, and then he died. Now, there's ten guys, but only eight times we see the phrase, and then he died. So that means two times we don't see the phrase, and then he died. One is Enoch, the other is Noah, and I told you Noah's day was coming. So we've run into this problem on the earth, and God reminds us, Oh, by the way, don't get too scared because remember, I have preserved the seed. I have provided a deliverer. So let's look here at 
this process as it works itself out. First, the wickedness of man. Man's wickedness is pervasive. We've seen this already in this first several verses. But also look with me at verses 5 and then verse 11 and verse 12. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention was only evil continually. It was pervasive. Look at verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There was mass corruption here. Now turn with me, and I want you to see something. Look with me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Beginning of verse 9. You know, because we got this flood thing, right? So flood thing, we're done, right? We're, 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 we're cool now, right? Got all this bad stuff going on, and then we got Noah, and then we got the flood. We wiped all that stuff out, and, and we're all good now. Verse 9, Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what we're dealing with. That's the product of the fall. So man's wickedness is pervasive. Understand that. Don't miss that. Man's wickedness is pervasive. There is no part of man that is untouched by sin. Every part of man is marred by sin. There is no remnant in man that is good. Man himself. He's not. He's not. It is absolutely pervasive. Secondly, man's wickedness is internal. Look at the second part of verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil, continually. Man's wickedness is internal. It's not external. There are those who believe that man is basically good and that the evil things that men do are a result of external forces working against man. But man is pristine. Listen to me. People who believe that don't have kids. Amen? They don't have kids. 
born in sin, shaped in iniquity. And I know we have a lot of wonderful little babies being born, and I think we've got four down and five to go, something like that, or, or whatever, you know. It's just something in the water. Y'all keep drinking. Keep them coming, all right? And so, but we do, and so these little babies come, and we have these wonderful baby dedications, and we hold the babies up here, and people are just, oh, they're so wonderful. And so That's a viper in a diaper, all right? <laughs> Wicked absolutely wicked. It's just small wicked, okay? But wicked nonetheless. Man is wicked, and it is internal. It is in us. It's not something that infects us later on. It is something that we, re- that we inherit. Listen, everything in creation reproduces how? After its own kind. So how did Adam reproduce? After his own kind. Adam was fallen. He was our federal head. We are fallen just like Adam. It is an internal problem. Thirdly, man's wickedness grieves God. Look at this in verses 6 and 7. One of the most awkward sayings in the whole Bible. I don't care which translation you have. This is perhaps the most awkward saying in the whole Bible. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them. I'm sorry. He, he repented, some translations say. Well, what is that? Is God saying, oh, my, me. I made a mistake. Is that what's being said here? No, that's not what's being said here. But here's what I want to propose to you. You take upon yourself this assignment and using your own limited human vocabulary, explain what must have gone on in the mind of God as he saw the wickedness of man even though it did not take him by surprise. How do you explain that? How do you put that into words? God looks at the wickedness of man, and God determines he's going to do something about the wickedness of man. The time has come for the wickedness of man to be judged, and they, God looks at this wickedness, and he, what? What word are you going to use? He turns. He, he, he changes directions. He, what word are you going to use, and how? No matter what kind of linguist you may think you are, No matter how strong your vocabulary is, how do you as a human being communicate to other human beings what went through the mind of God as he determined that even though this is what he anticipated, the time to judge had come? How do you say that? How does Moses communicate that better than he's communicated it? God looks at man, he's sorry he made the whole lot. God looks at man and repents. Does God change his mind? No, God doesn't change his mind. The immutability of God is one of those, those, those attributes of God himself. He doesn't change his mind. But he's grieved. God is grieved. He's not just this detached, 
dispassionate observer. God is grieved. Hey, you and I, you and I know that we have not given birth to the second coming. You and I know that our kids are sinful. But when our kids sin, do we just kind of go, oh yeah, I was anticipating that. Or are we grieved? And when you're grieved, does that mean that you're surprised? No, you're not surprised. If you are, you've got theological issues because you were expecting your baby to be the next Jesus if you're surprised when you discover that they're sinners. I told you, viper in a diaper. It is going to happen. It's going to happen. But when it does, it will grieve you. It was going to happen. And when it did, it grieved God. And one of the things that God does is he shortens these lifespans. Remember I told you last week, we could go on and on and on about why man's lifespan was so long and the conditions of the earth. And I mean, I have people who spend hours and write whole books about the condition of the earth and this canopy and why the lives could have been so long and so on and so forth. You know, right there in verse 3, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Why were the lifespans so long then and not that long now? Because God said that's about enough. Amen. The canopy of the earth and the... No, no, that's about enough of y'all living this long. 120 years. Later on, the psalmist is going to say, we get three score and ten. 900, nah, they can't handle that. 120, nah, they can't handle that either. Let's give them about 70. Man's wickedness grieves God, finally. Man's wickedness is incurable apart from supernatural intervention. Man's wickedness is incurable apart from supernatural intervention. Maybe if we live long enough, we could master this stuff. These guys were living 900 years and they didn't work it out. Maybe if we learn enough, maybe if we become more intelligent, maybe then we'll become less wicked. You know what our intelligence has done? We have the ability on the battlefield now to kill a thousand men in the time it used to take to kill ten. That's what our intelligence has given us. Our intelligence has taken us from carpet bombing in World War II where you just dropped dozens upon dozens upon dozens of bombs indiscriminately to where now they're laser guided and they've got cameras on the front so that we can see what we destroy. That's what our intelligence has gotten us. Intelligence cannot, does not, will not solve man's wickedness problem. It is an eternal problem. It is a pervasive problem. It's a problem that grieves God, and it's a problem that cannot and will not be solved apart from supernatural intervention. So those of you who are here and you're in church because you're trying to do better, here's my question. How's that working for you? I hear that all the time. We need to get our marriage together. So we're going to go back to church and we're going to try harder. Yeah, how's that working for you? 
because you're still you. And you, my friend, are the problem. So unless you can become something other than you, it's not going to be fixed. Apart from supernatural intervention. You don't need more time in this building. You need the hand of God. Amen? That's the wickedness of man that we see here in this text. But how only do we see the wickedness? We see the renewal of the covenant. First, God judges sin but provides himself a remnant. Here's, here's what I love. Because, by the way, verses 6 and 7, they're scary. God says, I'm sorry I made them. I, I'm, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, what God could have done is just said, everybody goes. Not everybody, everybody, okay? Everybody goes. And I'll just make me another Adam. But that's not what he did. Why? Because God made a covenant, and he will not go back on his covenant. So God's going to wipe out man, as he says in verses 6 and 7, but then look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, here's the thing. Noah was a righteous man. So does this mean that Noah tried harder than other men? No. No, Noah's a viper. He was a viper in a diaper too. His wickedness is pervasive. His wickedness is internal. His wickedness grieves God. And his wickedness can only be dealt with by what? Supernatural intervention. Noah's godly for the same reason Enoch was godly. Because of supernatural intervention. God made a covenant promise to Abraham. And Noah is a direct descendant and that covenant promise had to do with the physical seed. It also had to do with the spiritual seed. So God is going to wipe out mankind, but he's going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his covenant. So Noah is spared. And the children of Noah are spared. God makes provision for his elect prior to judgment. Look at verse 18. I love this. God's talking about all this stuff that's going to get messed up. Make this boat. And then verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. The covenant is continued through the son of promise. Here's what I noticed this week in getting ready for this. As God judges sin and yet makes provision and keeps his covenant, God tells Noah to build this ark. But here's what God doesn't do. God doesn't say, build an ark as big as you can because I'm going to try to get as many people as possible onto the ark. No. Noah says, build the ark this big because that's all you're going to need for who I'm going to bring. 
He knows beforehand who's going on the ark. God's not hoping that people change their mind and get on the ark. God has determined he's going to save his elect. He's still that kind of God. Because there's another ark. There's another Noah. Remember we said Noah was a type of Christ. It's the seed. The seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Who is that? Is that Noah? Well, sort of, but not completely. There's another one who comes from the same physical line. The same spiritual line. But catch this, he's also the God-man, God wrapped in flesh. And God keeps his covenant. But look, same principle. God judges sin, but provides himself a remnant. Can you say church? Amen? Next, God makes provision for his elect prior to judgment. Can you say hallelujah for the gospel and for evangelism? And finally, the covenant is continued through the son of promise. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ. That is what Genesis chapter 6 is about. Is it fun to talk about Nephilim? It's a lot of fun to talk about Nephilim. Is it fun to debate about the sons of God? Yeah, it's a lot of fun to debate about those things, but they have nothing to do with this. That's what we're about. Because now we live in a time where we see the same kind of wickedness that Noah saw before the flood. And we also live in a time, it's interesting that we're now reading through Revelation in our New Testament reading, What's Revelation about? Revelation is God saying, hey, y'all, remember that stuff I did with Noah? I'm still that God. Remember how I handled sin back in that day? I'm still that God. And it's going to happen again. But praise God, this time there's a bigger ark. It's called the New Jerusalem. Amen? We serve a God who judges sin. But we also serve a God who is merciful towards sinners and faithful concerning his covenant. Throughout history, we see this. Folks, that's what Genesis is about. And, you know, as a family in our morning devotional times, we've been working our way through Genesis. And it's interesting, preaching through Genesis back here, and now as a family, we're, you know, chapter 31, chapter 32, we're going on in Genesis. But preaching through Genesis, as we've already read through Genesis, now all of a sudden, as our family, as we're dealing with what's going on in Genesis, you see over and over and over again this same principle, the preservation of the seed, the godly line, and God providing for himself this godly line. That's what Genesis is about. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis, that's what it's about. And newsflash, that's what the whole Bible is about. You, you can lay this over the whole Bible. This is what it's about. God judges sin but provides himself a remnant. 
God makes provision for his elect prior to judgment. And the covenant is continued through the son of promise from Genesis through Revelation. That's what the Bible is about. Genesis chapter 6 is just a summation of the whole message of the whole Bible. God good. <laughs> the Bible incredible. God is merciful. And if you are here today and you're working real hard to try to overcome your flesh, newsflash, even your desires and your efforts to get better are wickedness. It's wickedness. Partly because you are trying to do something that only God can do. So can I help you? Just let me just, let's, let's just go here for just a moment, all right? I, I want you to see this picture. If God says, you're wicked and I'm the only answer to your wickedness, but you say, I'm going to try to fix my w- wickedness with X, whatever X is, you've put in the place of God. So whatever X is, is your idol. Therefore, if you are trusting yourself, if you're trusting your, your, your pastor, if you're trusting your mate, if you're trusting your friend, if you're trusting whatever out there to give you the key to make you better, then your effort to become pleasing to God has become idolatry in his sight. He's the answer. He's the only answer. Is your family in trouble? The ark, that's the answer. Your marriage in trouble, the ark, that's the answer. Is your soul in trouble? The ark, that's the answer. The son of promise, Jesus Christ. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us back to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the answer. That's the only answer. You will not get better apart from the supernatural intervention of the God who makes provision for his elect. You come to him through repentance and faith. You cry out to him for mercy, for rescue, for salvation, and you trust in nothing else. Because you trusting in something else is like an individual in Noah's day saying, yeah, you go on and build your boat, man. I got me a dinghy over here. I'm going to trust that. There is no other answer. It's the son of promise, and it's nothing else. Come to him and be redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for the goodness that you've shown us, for your mercy toward us, for your long-suffering, for your loving kindness. So grateful to you for not having given up on us. So grateful to you for your provision through the Son of Promise, Jesus Christ.
and like those in the days of Noah. We live in the face of great wickedness. Seen most acutely when we look in the mirror. And we desperately need deliverance. Forgive us, O God, for every instance wherein we have trusted anything else. We come to you and you alone in repentance and faith. Do your work in our midst. This we ask because we believe it's in accordance with the will and the nature and the authority of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.